everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast in conversation. My name is Ross McKeechee. Banyan Books is Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. That's uh, 50 years now that Banyan Books has been an independent operating bookstore and looking to do another 50 years strong. Today, our guest is Jesse Thistle. And before I get into his formal introduction, I'd like to acknowledge that Although we have people joining us from around the world, uh, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. That includes the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Jesse Thistle, our guest today, is a Métis Cree Scot from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. He's an assistant professor of Métis studies at York University in Toronto, where he's also working on a PhD in the history department. He is the winner of the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize for nonfiction and an Indigenous Voices Award. He was also a finalist for the High Plains Book Awards and was also, also uh, a finalist in Canada Reads. Mr. Thistle won a Governor General's Academic Silver Medal in 2016, is a Pierre, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Scholar and a Vanier Scholar. He has won numerous other awards, including the Odessa Award in 2014 and the Dr. James Wu Prize in 2015. Now, recognition and awards have not always been the reality for our guest, however, in fact, the first 30 years of his life were informed by trauma, discrimination, addictions, crime, homelessness, and jail. His beautifully poetic and gripping book chronicles this journey from childhood to almost present day. And the book is a number one national bestseller in Canada titled From the Ashes, My Story of Being Métis, Homeless, and Finding My Way. Today, Jesse Thistle is the national representative for Indigenous homelessness for the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness and is a strong advocate for an Indigenous understanding of homelessness. Banyan Books community, please join me in welcoming our guest today, Mr. Jesse Thistle. Jesse, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor. Thank you. Really an honor to have you here. And, and your book... Um, I, I read it in two days and I couldn't put it down. Um, it was it was so moving, beautiful, um, human. Uh, I was weeping at times and I, it was just just wonderful. So thank you for putting that out there. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I'm sorry I made you cry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did this, before we get into your life and story, how did the book come to be? What was the inspiration for the book coming? Yeah, it's a weird thing. The book it happened by accident. Um, <clears throat> really, all it is is my AA steps from rehab that I was collecting. Uh, I, I do in rehab, I'd have to stand up and uh, voice what had happened in my addiction. That's part of the program there, their AA program. And uh, so I wrote down all these little fragments of memory of what happened in my addiction to make sense of it. And uh, the way that I won all my uh, academic awards in 2016, no one had done that before. And it created all kinds of media attention. And I got an email from Simon and & Schuster and uh, they said that they were interested in writing my, helping me write my life story. And if I had anything written about my life. And I said, well, I have these rehab things that I've been doing, you know, my amendments since I was in rehab and I sent those off to them and that's what the book eventually became. So that's the story of how the book was and why it appears the way it does. Okay. Now, how did you, how did you hone, hone your writing skills? I mean, it, it comes across like you've been doing this for a long time. Like your writing no. is incredible. Is it just something that came naturally to you? No, no, I, uh, I've been working on it. I could, I was functionally illiterate in 2009, I think, uh, 2008, when I started the journey. Uh, and I've been working on it, working on my craft every day uh, since then. Uh, and when I mean functionally illiterate, I could read like, uh, 
a Toronto, a small Toronto Sun article, like grade six level, and then like, but more complex stuff I couldn't understand. No, and uh, I actually just write how I speak because I just don't know any better, and so I just wrote how I think and speak, and that's what you're getting when you read my book. It comes across beautifully. Um, what was the biggest challenge in completing the book, crossing the finish line, getting it done? The hardest thing? Yeah. Legal. My book has a lot of legal, um, I would say, choppy water uh, that I could get into or that the publisher could get into. And so they had their legal team uh, do their checks for like six months. It was a long time. It was longer than actually writing the book. Uh, just to make sure that all the information was correct and all that stuff. And so that was the hardest part was to get legal clearances uh, before the book was even published. So this is from the time I finished in November 2017 to about July the next year. They were just, uh, yeah, fact checking everything. Right. Okay. And I'm assuming there was a lot of names that had to be changed or left yeah or they had to stay the same because they're in the public record like the murder trial that has to stay their names had to stay i wanted to change that because like you know but no because it's in the public record i couldn't uh certain scenes so there were whole scenes that were taken out of the book too uh early childhood uh court scenes with us in CAS going into my grandparents' custody that, that had to be taken out. You can't uh, depict children in uh, real-time court in a nonfiction. And so, yeah, yeah, that, that, that was all those things that we had to deal with. Okay, okay. One of the things that really struck me in, in the part of your book, I mean, it goes through sections starting in 1979 and through to your life, and I think it's 2017, um, is is in your childhood years? It's almost like you're you put yourself back in your childhood perspective. You weren't writing as an adult now. No, speaking about the child, you're writing from your childhood perspective. How did you put yourself into that place? Oh, uh, yeah, great question. I uh, I see a trauma therapist, uh, and to access some of those memories, they have to do. Um, memory work at that age you you literally have to go into your you know that that what your child you is still in you you know you can access that you know you just have to have the right type of people around you to help you do that and so I was doing a lot of that work then and when I would send it off to my editor she's really really good one of the best in the country Lori Grassi at Simon & Schuster uh, she's like it's impactful but it's not from the perspective of a child. Can you try to write that from a child's perspective? Because it's going to be even, what you're saying you felt, just show them. Because there's nothing more powerful than just showing someone. And so that's what I did. I wrote it from the perspective of a three-year-old child getting pulled out of a vent uh, with CAS, being scooped by CAS to almost stabbing my classmate in the, the heart when I was eight years old in grade school to being a high school, all the way along. And I changed that. You'll, you'll notice with the writing that it gets more complex as the book progresses because my mind and my the way I'm thinking gets more complex. And that actually continues all the way through to the final chapters when I get better. You start to see there's a real articulation of concepts and uh, more complex thought that's happening. That's because me as a, I, as a person, as I'm writing it actually was actually getting more educated, more to the person I am now. And so I tried to be as authentic as I could throughout the book and place the writing in the perspective of the me in that time period. Also this, the attitude that I had at that time too. Right. And so the whole book is, is framed that way see is that a photo of your grandparents behind you there yes <clears throat> my heroes my personal heroes yeah my grandma and grandpa jackie and Cyril thistle right can you tell our audience a little bit about your grandparents and the role they played in your life well these two people are actual real life superheroes they took three kids that weren't theirs troubled kids from a broken home and they raised them who does that 
And they did it for free. They did it without state intervention. They actually turned down CAS and CAS tried to pay them per month to take me and my brothers. And they said, no, we're going to do this our way. We're going to raise them according to our rules. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were disciplinarians, though. They're old school. Like back in the day, this was normal. People used to hit their kids. I'm not saying it was right. This is a transition generation, right? A generation before me, even, it was even worse. And so by the time I got to my grandparents, they, they were disciplinarians and they'd hit us, but they were very loving. And uh, they raised me and my brothers in Brampton, Ontario, and gave me a shot at life, actually, where I wouldn't have had one before. Now, well, as we, as we go through the story from your childhood into sort of high school age, you face real issues around your identity. And you even pre- pretend or lie that, and say you're Italian r- and rather than acknowledging because you've, you saw discrimination in your peer group. Can you tell us a little bit about that struggle you went through around identity? Yeah, growing up, I, uh, me and my brothers were taken from my mom. Uh, my mom's people are Métis Cree. Uh, they're what are called the rebels that fought against the government. Uh, and so... Uh, when we were adopted out and raised in suburban white Brampton back in the day, back in the, the early 80s and uh, late 80s, it was majority white then there. And um, <clears throat> in popular culture, as well as just the attitudes that people had, I knew that uh, being Indigenous wasn't a good thing. You know, it was always around negative, really stereotypical things, alcoholic, drug addict, homeless, all these different things. And I saw these in popular culture. People would say that around me. And I grew up in the era era of like Goodfellas, right? This is like the time. And Untouchables and all these kind of Italian gangster movies were out then. And so I looked around and saw all the Italian guys were the cool guys, right? Because of that. And so I was like, I want to be like them. And I can, I kind of look like them. My skin is a little dark and I kind of have an olive complexion. And so I started just telling people that I was Italian and it worked for a while. It made life easier. I don't know. I don't know how many people actually believed me, uh, but it was something I used to uh, tell people just because being indigenous back then, I used to get in a lot of fights on the schoolyard and it was tough. It was not an easy thing. And so I just didn't want any of that. And I didn't want to be associated with my mom or her people. Or, so I just lied and said I was Italian. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you think um, being cut off from your Métis identity affected you at that age, not having a sense of, of place? It was everything, right? The, that's what the root of the whole, you know, half the trauma in the book is, is just not knowing who I am, right? Not knowing, having a, a clear understanding beyond those stereotypes of what it is to be a Métis Cree person, you know? Uh, to see that we're not miscegenated tropes, you know, in, a, in this country's history, we are proud rebel people that stood up and for what we believed in. And we went to war for those reasons. And we lost our land because it was taken from us, not because, you know, uh, we were pushovers. And so not knowing any of this stuff about my identity was like so destructive because what happens with kids, especially Indigenous kids, is they will pick up from popular culture references about their indigeneity. And they kind of create like a bricolage of identity. It's like a Franken, Frankenstein of identity that's not healthy. You know, I remember growing up and going to high school and wanting to be native and uh, searching in all the really worst places. Uh, Jim, Jim Morrison, I used to want to be like him because he was had this shamanistic kind of personality that in that movie, The Doors, Oliver Stone. We came out with that one. Another one was uh, Jimi Hendrix. I heard that he was a quarter Cherokee, so I started dropping acid and, you know, listening to his music, hopefully connecting that way. And so I just didn't know, right? When you're an adoptee and you're cut off and there's no one around you to teach you what it is to be Indigenous, then you start to pick up all these toxic references, which ultimately almost killed me, right? And other Indigenous peoples, I'm sure, that are disconnected, and it has the same effect on them, too. And so 
part of me getting better was to unseat those narratives and really find out the truth and reconnect with my identity and really figure out what it, what it means to be Métis Cree. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I want to get into more about that in a bit, but I want to just first find out from you, you know, you go from this uh, being cut off from your roots and of course, eventually you find alcohol and drugs and that provides you with something. What did that provide you that you that felt like a missing piece? Well, early on, like one, three, four with my dad, uh, alcohol was food, right? So it was replacing the food that I was not getting from my father and mother. So we used to drink the remnants of brown pop. We used to call it this beer, half drunk beers, and that was what we drank. And, you know, I didn't know we shouldn't be doing that. My dad gave that to us. And uh, I don't know, uh, I got used to get drunk with my buddy Leroy when I was like six, seven. You know, that continued sporadically all the way through. Uh, so I guess it made me feel good. You know, at first, it made me feel good about myself. Made me, you know, uh, got me friends, uh, social inclusion, uh, street family. You know, I, that's when I started hanging out with the Bud Boys, and you know, all that started happening around there. And and from that became a new identity, right? A new identity without pain, a uh, new identity uh, within the new friend circles that I began to inhabit when I was about fifteen. And I would say raving kind of filled that void very quickly. I don't know if kids even go to raves these days, but back in the day, that's what we did. And uh, that became who I was, you know. Now you're in high school and um, you meet a really wonderful girl, Karen, mm -hmm. and things are kind of looking up for a time there. And then there's this sort of pivotal moment. It's almost like, bang, bang, all of a sudden you're out, out of the house. Can you just fill us in a little bit what happened there? Yeah, I had saved up uh, quite a bit of money. I had a produce job. I was a little produce boy. Uh, I still love that job. I still love the smell of bacon, uh, of broccoli, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all these years later. Anyway, I uh, got in a fight with my grandfather. He was driving me to work one day. I was already an alcoholic and drug addict when I was living at home with my grandparents. I was like 18, 19. I just turned 19. And um, my grandfather had let my brother Josh drive. And like, he's only a couple of years older than me. Helped him, bought him a car, got him his license, all this. And I was jealous. I wanted that too. Cause I saw that my friends had cars. And so I said to him, I want to drive. And he's like, you can't Jesse, you're going to kill yourself driving drunk one day. Uh, and we got in an argument in the van and, um, I thought it was my money. I earned that money. I wanted to spend that money. I wanted to buy a car. And so we got in a big fight that day. Uh, and it was really my pride, I guess, was was hurt most. Uh, he said that he I wasn't allowed to drive because I would probably most likely kill myself. I mean, he was probably right, actually. Now I'm looking back with different eyes. But I didn't want to hear that. And so I just took out my savings. And to get back at him for restricting me, I just blew all my money on drugs and raves and with my friends. And, and uh, it ended, actually with me getting kicked out of my grandparents' house after a baggie of cocaine fell out of my uh, hoodie uh, after I had a one-night stand uh, with a girl. I broke my girlfriend's heart and cheated on her, and my grandparents uh, found the coke and kicked me out all in the same night, and that, that began my homeless career. And so, you know, I don't blame them now. At the time, I hated them, but I, I understand why they did what they did now. You know, I wasn't flying right and I, I had to go. So from that time uh, on, you, you're basically moving from place to place, sort of rootless. Um, this theme you, you point to a lot throughout the book is um, a theme of, of running away, not yeah. just from your own pain, but any challenges or, or, or um, problems that you face that that started right from the beginning it was almost like that was the fat like your the pattern that was ingrained in you how can you tell us a bit about that 
Yeah, if you go back right to one of the very earliest poems in the book, it's called uh, A Little Boy's Dream. It's about learning to run away. It's actually about suicide. I was so young. I, I was when I first got to my grandparents' house and I jumped out the window. I was trying to commit suicide. I just didn't have the words. But I already knew by then to run away from my problems. I was four, you know. Because uh, my father, he was a hustler, small-time hustler, outlaw. Uh, he would run away from the landlord every night. Uh, every uh, first, uh, the first of every month on that night. Uh, before the rent was due, he'd just run away. And then we'd go to another place and do the same thing and use and run away. And so I had always done that with him, you know. And then when I got to my grandparents' house, any problem that I had, I just run away from it. You know, it seemed to work. It seemed to work. And then when I got homeless, that was literally my survival. My 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 strategy to live was to go to one spot, mess everything up, run away, go to the next spot, run away, and just keep doing that until I get actually until I get to the murder trial, and then I I decide to make a stand in my life. You'll know what I'm talking about when you read the book. You talk a bit about shame in the book. What role did shame play in your experience? Shame? <clears throat> shame. It's, it's everything, right? My addiction is a mix of shame and resentment and fear. Uh, yeah, shame. Shame in being my father, my father's son, you know? My grandfather was not very proud of his son, and I used to down talk, talk him openly in front of us, uh, and that really stuck with me, you know. Um, so I have shame about that. There was shame about an assault that happened in a club uh, that I carried for many years. Uh, it wasn't until I wrote this book that I finally decided to break the silence and talk about it. Uh, with the help of my therapist, she was the one that unearthed that memory. And this shame, I guess, if I was to look at it through my eyes now, it led to some homophobic thoughts in the in 2000s that I had to work through. Uh, that I, I think I'm, I'm a lot healthier for talking about. Uh, there's shame and also the type of life that I let myself lead, right? We all see ourselves as like just and moral citizens. But then you realize, like after what I've been through, that's just a veneer that your situation and environment provides. Given uh, a high stress environment, anyone turns animalistic. Anybody turns into survival monster. Everybody. And, um, you know, I guess the best I've heard it articulated is through the work of Viktor Frankl in A Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, where people do horrible things to survive. And there are many things that I did that I can't uh, reconcile, even now. Uh, and so I still carry that shame, and I always will. And that's part of being an addict, you know. And, uh, yeah. You found yourself eventually um, heading to the West Coast, where Vancouver, the Lower Mainland, New Westminster, with your, your buddy Leroy. And you guys were living out of a car there. Uh, of course, anybody who's been to Vancouver and Banyan Books is in Vancouver um, knows about the downtown east side. What was your experience around the downtown east side? I was terrified. That was like one of the first neighborhoods that me and my buddy Leroy uh, drove through. Uh, when I first became homeless after my brother kicked me out, um, I was, I, I, it was like a different world. I just, I'm, I was, you gotta remember, I'm a suburban kid, even though I'm native, from middle class Brampton, Ontario, right? This is like Labrador Retrievers, hockey in the street, and Tim Hortons. That's basically, you know, and then you go to the Lower East Side. <laughs> Holy shit, man. That was like a, I was terrified. I, I'd never seen anything like that before. And then all the people were native. I'd never seen that many native people in, so, in one place other than when I was back in Saskatchewan. I, I was just like, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And I remember how thinking about like, how can this exist in this country? And then how can it exist in like literally the wealthiest city in Canada? You know, 
Vancouver is more money than Toronto for sure. Uh, how is this even happening? That was then. I went back last year to shoot a, uh, a documentary with uh, Krista Lawton. She's a filmmaker from uh, Victoria. And it's a hundred times worse now. It's just got in the, over 20 years. I, like, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. Uh, but it, it, it's worse now than it was when I was there uh, all those years ago. So, um, Tell us a little bit about your time in the provincial jail system, um, the challenges, but also you, you met some people when you were in jail that helped you more than, more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Jail was like a place for me to rest, you know? Uh, the truth of the matter is in Canada, as in I'm sure many other Western c countries, the government and citizenry care more about criminals than they do about homeless people. That's the truth. That's the truth. And uh, I know this because, like, one, if you just look at the economics of how much we spend per, per incarcerated citizen as opposed to housing someone that's homeless, it's way, way more for an incarcerated citizen. I think it's like $2,500 a night where it's maybe $300 a week. To house someone that's homeless and so I see I've seen that from the inside you know I know that from the policy perspective and then also from someone that's lived it you know and how that actually feels um so yeah 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 can you ask me the second part of your question there sure, yeah yeah the the challenges that you faced in jail and then the second part of that was the helpers the, the people that inspired you that you oh yeah yeah yeah, so jail was like a rest stop for me, a place that I eventually got to keep my legs. So uh, you'll have to read the book if you want to know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it was like respite from this, uh, you know, people just not caring in society and me not getting the help that I needed. When I was in there, I got my teeth fixed. This, I used to get my front tooth fixed all the time. It used to come out, it would look like a chiclet but I could smile again where before my teeth were rotted out from addiction and fighting. And so that it represented that it also represented a place where I could get my blood work done. I never had my health card or identification, so I couldn't access walk-in clinics to get my health stuff. So I remember waiting to get my hep C, HIV, uh, hep A tests uh, in jail. That's where I would use and or my tuberculosis shot. I used to get those, I sometimes get arrested just to get those tests done. Um, while I was in there, I met wonderful people. Jail had some of the smartest and kindest people that I've ever met in my life, which is odd. You, you know, you were told certain things about jail from the media and really it's not that. It's the worst thing in, for me in there was like boredom and disease. Those are the two, you know, uh, uh, well, when I was in there, I, I met a guy named Priest, and he taught me the, the value of, of uh, being a good person and sharing. And with my cellmate, Loriston, uh, they taught me what it was to be a good person, you know, and, and to give unconditionally and be a good community member. I learned that in jail, you know, from, from guys that society apparently has thrown away. And so... I value my brothers inside uh, and that taught me those lessons and I carry those with me today. And uh, it's the opposite of what you would think about jail. I went in there uh, not to be punished, but to be rehabilitated. And I actually used it that way. And there are other people in there that, that use it that way too. Including you started um, re-educating yourself and, and yeah. getting back into school. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was a I was a frequent flyer at the provincial system. <laughs> I was like, they call me a short timer, or a guy who's in for a twenty minute cup of coffee. So I would always go in for small misdemeanor theft and just things like that, assault and just Mickey Mouse charges, right? And uh, that meant meant that I was always going in and out of their system, and so. When I was in there one of the last times, I just was sick and tired of living the way that I was living. I want to change my life, you know. I uh, 
I saw this guy at the end of our range. This is where the inmates do their uh, time on pods. He was on the end of the range and he was just, you know, in his books, minding his business, didn't ever get in trouble, didn't trade chocolate bars, nothing. And I, I walked up to him and I said, hey, man, you know, uh, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe like uh, I could do it too. And he's like, well, I'm doing my high school through the chaplaincy. You can go and try it out. That's the Salvation Army worker that goes and speaks with the guys. And so I started talking and with the chaplaincy and with help from this uh, Dave was his name, uh, and other guys on the range. They they helped me get through my first couple of assignments and helped me relearn to read and write while I was in jail. And so, I owe those guys my the very beginning of my literacy. You know, I remember get, uh, handing in my homework and getting beat up uh, in, in on that range, but also getting help from guys too. So, jail wasn't always bad. You know, it was a place for me to start my life anew. And so, yeah, this is in Maplehurst in, in, in uh, Ontario mainly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And later you found yourself kind of in a, a last chance sort of effort um, back at Harvest House. Yeah. Where you were able to do a year of rehabilitation for addiction rather than going back into the jail system. That's right. And you continued your education there. And there's one part of that that was particularly significant with that etiquette class. Yeah. Can you shed some light on that for us? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I would say, uh, like I present really well now, you wouldn't know me from the person that I was. I was literally like a wolf, like a wolf on the street. Um, half wild, I would say. Uh, and I just forgot all the things that I was taught about taking care of myself. Because when you're in survival mode, those things just don't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how good you smell or how clean your clothes are. Uh, It was always on to the next hustle, always on to the next, uh, you know, scam or whatever I was doing. And so I was in survival mode. And so all those uh, personal hygiene and etiquette, uh, things that I learned as a child, how to take care of yourself, how to brush your teeth, they just fell away. I had to relearn all those things when I was in rehab. I learned it through um, courses that were offered at the University of Ottawa. Two guys that were in Harvest House Rehabilitation Program. I had to learn how to talk to someone straight and look them in the eye. I had to learn how to write an, uh, um, a CV. Uh, you know, how to do that, how to like uh, eat at a table, kitchen, and use your manners, all that stuff. I had to learn all those things, communication modules and etiquette. And it really, really mattered to me because at that point in my life, I was 32. I had not completed anything ever in my whole life. And so when I did this etiquette training with Dr. Tarian, she she printed out this like, she just wrote it on like Word. It was like some really cheesy I wish I had it here. I, I would show you. Uh, and it had my name. And it had that I graduated from this thing from University of Ottawa. And to me, that was the world. That was like, oh, my God, I can actually get to university and, like, be here. I have the right to be here. This is amazing. And, like, I could, I, when, I, when I completed it, I took that certificate and I put it in between my big hardcover books. And like every time when I was at rehab and it like got really hard, I would open up that book and I'd see that certificate. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I did that. You know, I can dream, you know, I can have courage to dream. And so, yeah. Since I moved, I used to have that hanging in my old place. And since I moved, I haven't hung it. I should hang it up. That's, you're reminding me to do that. Nice, nice. Maybe you can post a photo of that on your Twitter page or something when we Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, I mean, all the challenges, all, all the hardship, um, and, and then all this hopefulness in your life and turning it around and slowly, just like the, you started going downhill gradually, slowly, slowly, you start building yourself up again and you these people start coming back into your life family and friends who'd wondered where you were this whole time 
unbeknownst yeah. to you, it seems you, you, you didn't realize because you're just on the go. You're in, in this trauma, uh, drug fueled state. Um, your mom comes, comes out and is looking for you. And then of course there's Lucy. Yeah. Who's Lucy? Well, Lucy is the, uh, the foundation upon which my new life is built, I guess. Uh, Lucy's my wife now. Uh, I knew her when I was a young kid. She used to hang out with the popular girls and I was a nerd. Right. And uh, I met her in like grade six, seven and eight. And she talked to me back then and like all the cool girls didn't, you know, and, uh, I always remembered that. I always remembered her for that. And years later when we connected, I remember she was kind, you know. She didn't know who the hell I was. <laughs> we reconnected years later. She was actually at the party uh that I was at when I fell and uh ruined my leg. She was there and then when I was coming out of treatment, uh when my grandmother died, uh Lucy sent me a Facebook message and that's how we connected and uh, this is the first time I I didn't even know what Facebook was really I'd only had the account for a couple of days when she sent that to me and so um yeah she's everything she trusted me back when I was just this new uh you know sobering up criminal and everybody thought she was crazy to be involved with someone like me and but she saw something in me you know, I don't know, still don't know how she saw that. Because then at that time, I hadn't been out of trouble or uh, off drugs in years. And so, but she she picked me up uh, from rehab when I graduated and I came to live with her and she got me my first job. She was what what's called a, a peer support live-in worker. And so she she helped me navigate all these different systems like doctors, getting to appointments, uh, building my credit, all those things. And on top of that, she was my lover, right? And so she was the whole package and I knew I had to scoop her up. And so that's why I married her. And that's, that's uh, our love story. But if you want to live, if you want more poetic, uh, I write, I write a lot smoother than I talk. So go read the book, you know, yeah. a love story. Yes, definitely read the book again, available at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. We're going to get to our live audience questions in about five minutes. Um, Jesse, you're a wonderful poet and there's not only is your, is your writing poetic, but there's also poems sprinkled through the book. Um, and uh, before we started the interview, you were letting me know that you have a lot of new work, a new collection that you're working on. And yeah. you said you might share some of those poems with us. Are you working on a, on a poetry book? Because I would love to read that if you are. Yes, I am. I'm uh, working with my agent on a poetry book. And uh, we there's homes for it. We just want to come out with the best possible product. Uh, and so I, I wrote about 70 and we've pared those down to 50. And I'm going to get back into the shop and write some more over the summer and Fantastic. Okay, thank you. What what do you uh, feel inspired to share with us? Let me see. Uh, what kind of poem are you in the mood for? Well, uh, what if what if we start out with something a little more gritty? If you got it, and then we can then we can have something a little more heartwarming to lift our spirits. Oh, that's that's a good approach to take. All right. So my first one is called. Okay, it's called PTSD. I have complex PTSD. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, it's, uh, it's PTSD. I smell the flowers in my backyard, but still I think behind each petal lay gunmen and goblins and police with red lasers pointed right at my chest. That's uh, what it's like to be, have PTSD. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a lot of the st the stories you tell in the book about the paranoia that you developed. Probably not just, I mean, the drugs, of course, induced a lot of that, but probably from your experiences combined with the drugs, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've been involved in murder cases. I only put in a touch of what I was involved in in the book uh, around those kind of people. You know, I was among them. I was among the highwaymen and outlaws. I was one, you know, and so, yeah, 
Yeah, I've, I've, and I'll never go away. Yeah, that stuff will never go. I'm working with my trauma therapist, and it's just a deep seated uh, consequence of living that life. You know, yeah. it's not romantic. Don't anybody who wants to go or is thinking about, don't do it. You know, uh, I sound like an old man now. Hold on. Uh, so now you want an upbeat? You wanted something upbeat? You said sure, sure. Something, whatever, whatever you feel. Okay, so part of this book, and I, I sh- this is just me sharing. I'm not going to uh, – the content actually came from the love poems that I wrote to Lucy when I was in rehab. We didn't have – we couldn't put them in my memoir, and so we saved them all up. And your, the next book is going to – it's called Stars and Scars. So it shows the scars of all the stuff that I went through when it shows all the beautiful stars. All the beautiful things like falling in love with Lucy and sending her love poems from rehab. And so I'll read uh, one of those poems. Awesome. Uh, Okay, it's called Berry Picking. And if you read the book, there's a whole chapter on berry picking. Okay, berry picking. Hope, my love, it burns brightest of all. So vibrant, scattering the wreckage of my past. You illuminate the forest. Now I can pluck those kisses and carry them to sustain me for the journey ahead. One by one, I shall collect and savor them like wild berries in harvest. Those are sneak peeks into my new book. That's exciting. Look out for it, folks. Uh, So scars and stars. Yes. Awesome. I, I'm looking forward to, to checking that out. Um, before we get into our audience questions, we had an email uh, uh, from from someone in the Banyan community with a question. And I think you, you pretty much answered this question, but I just wanted to acknowledge this question from Vera. And if there's anything else you want to say to comment, she said, how were you able to remember your early childhood and adolescence in such great detail during the writing of the book? What was your process like? She says, I hope to do the same one day. Blessings and thank you. Now you covered a bit about your, your trauma therapy and, and how you were able to yes. it and your, and your uh, editor helping you. Is, is there anything else you did to uncover those childhood experiences? Yeah, I had to go back and talk to my brothers. I had to talk to people that were there among those memories who, in many ways, they remember things differently than you do, right? You got to remember your perspective is your perspective. You could be in the same exact incident with somebody else and they perceive it completely different than you do. So it's your job as a memoirist to go back and and talk to people. I had to go talk to my old probation officer. Uh, She was the one where I got my mug shots from. I had to go back and talk to old uh, police that arrested me old people that I had harmed. And then beyond that, because I was homeless uh, and uh, the way that I lived, I was always coming in contact with public institutions. My life story uh, is out there already. It's like I was in court. I was in, you know, the medical system. I was in, you know, the police custody. And so all that's there. I just had to go and get my, my RCMP record. I went back and I looked at my CAS record uh my brother jerry's doing a a a court claim against uh, cas and so he had access to that and so that's how i constructed a lot of those memories and then lastly i'd say if you understand trauma i can't not i can't forget that's the problem when you have trauma uh that's what self-medicating is all about you're trying to erase and and just i can't i can't do that i'm like a time traveler it's like I'm three and I'm at, you know, in the vent or I'm, you know, 25 and I'm stealing pork and ground noodles. And like, uh, it's just like I'm transported to these times and I, I can't forget that's the problem. And so if you're going to write a, a memoir, if you've had a traumatic past, know that it gets difficult uh, to access these memories. And it does help, though, to have people witness them. And Was it pretty healing for you to write this book? Yeah, yeah. I feel lighter, but also I feel like I'm part of a community too, because I get emails all across the country of different people that have lived remarkably similar lives to what I have. 
And, uh, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm part of a community. So it was both cathartic and welcoming. On the note of community, we have a question from Sylvie. She says, do you feel you might have overcome your addictions faster with more support from your community and society in general? Or do you feel you needed those years to get to a point where you yourself were ready to overcome them? Uh, great question. I, I don't think I did anything out of the norm when I was growing up. Like I, people experiment, right, with drugs and raving was normal back in my day. You know, my, just my grandparents had such an aversion to drugs because of what had happened with my dad that they punished me beyond measure. Like you shouldn't kick a kid out when they're, you know, 19, 20 and then never let them back ever, ever, like no matter what, even if their leg's going to drop off their body, that's not right, you know? And so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pissed off at my community and my family for letting me you know, wander the way that I did. But then I have to think, was I ready? You know, was I ready? Had I had enough of the life, you know, or was I just like out there? Because it wasn't all bad either, right? Like it, there was a lot of high adventure and it was fun too. And I enjoyed it, you know, I'm not going to lie there, you know, living that criminal lifestyle. So that's a tough one. I think, though, if I would never have gotten kicked out and I had a place to go for my brother Josh's that got me into treatment, I wouldn't have this story to tell, you know. And I would have 10 years. Maybe I'd have a house. Maybe my kid would be almost finished uh, college now. I don't know because that's, you know, I'm 20, 45. Kid, kid would be coming out now. Uh, so uh, there's that I think about, you know, and so... It was all about timing, uh, you know, the, those community supports need to be there for people when they need them. Like if I would have gotten kicked out and I knew where to go right away, that they would have set me up into a place and I got a job. And, you know, I think this keeps me up at night, you know, how, yeah, thinking about this. And so, but there, I still am resentful uh, towards portions of my family and, and society, Canadian society in general too, uh, for letting this homelessness problem perpetually gone this is this is a, a big issue in canada and, and being uh in the lower mainland it's an especially big issue what do you want canadians to know and understand about trauma addictions and being from an indigenous background one uh, the gateway drug is not marijuana you know the gateway drug is trauma Trauma is what causes addiction later in life. So usually the higher a person scores on what are called adverse childhood experiences, ACE uh, in psych uh, psychology terms, the more likely they're going to develop addictions later in life, either to self-medicate from pain or to run away like I was, right? And so that what that means though is the opposite of um, addiction isn't sobriety, isn't sobriety. And a lot of people get this messed up. The opposite of addiction is connection, is human connection, is being brought back into the circle, having a Lucy that'll help you do all, get you all your appointments, you know, love you unconditionally, trust you, all those things that like, you know, being a part of society is about. And so that's what I want people to know, you know, that's what I want people to understand because um, as Indigenous peoples, we're dealing with our own personal trauma, right? ACE, you know, if we go through the system and stuff that, but we're also dealing with greater historical trauma that's been handed down to us. So what a normal person would live with, you know, traumatic experience, uh, they live with their own in Canadian society where indigenous peoples, they have the weight of hundreds of years of history behind them. And so I'm surprised that most of more aren't addicted, tell you the truth. Uh, and uh, this is a problem of the way that the country was made. We stole everything from them and traumatized them. And 
now we're blaming them for, uh, you know, the addictions that have come from the trauma that have been caused by the mainstream. And so the mainstream people really need to understand this and develop an empathy because the problem isn't the addicted indigenous person. The problem is uh, the middle-class uh, white person that's not sharing their resources and properties that are creating these issues, you know, like look at the both lines of their families, you know, intergenerational trauma is passed down. Well, on the other side of it, the family that took that wealth, intergenerational wealth is being passed down and they're getting all the opportunity. They're getting into the best schools. Their kids have all the opportunity that doesn't exist for native people because everything's been taken from them up until very recently. And that's what I want people to understand when they read my book, you know, you, it's very clear to see that like my family was displaced onto the road allowances. My family fell apart in the seventies because of trauma. This was not my fault. You know, I bore the consequences of that years later when I became an addict and homeless. Right. And so is the similar, similar, very similar story for many other indigenous peoples. Is this a conversation that you see happening more and more in mainstream media or is it still very much lacking? No, it's lacking because everybody benefits from it. Nobody wants to say, well, my mortgage is the reason why the Haudenosaunee don't have their territory in Caledonia. No one wants to ask that question. And then once they do know that question and they really realize that they're the source of the problem, then they don't want to give any of those resources back. Mm -hmm. So this conversation never happens. Or if it does, it's, it's very cursory. Or it's, uh, they're talking with people that are very cordial with the government to say what people want to be said, not what needs to be said. Uh, and so we're at the very beginning of these kinds of conversations. Right. Yeah. What, where, what's the next step? Who would you like to see stepping up and doing more? I mean, you're talking about the middle class, obviously policy and government is included. What, as a person, as a middle-class white person, what, what can they do? What are the questions they can ask? How can they take action? Well, I would pressure the government if your government, uh, provincial <clears throat> or, you know, city, what are, what are their homelessness plans? What are their concrete milestones? How have they contributed to developing an indigenous housing strategy, urban housing strategy? Um, what are their partnerships like? What communities do they consult with? All these questions need to be asked by the regular everyday citizen. You know, and it, our, our vote is our power in, in Canada as in other democracies. So if your um, party isn't going to develop a good comprehensive indigenous housing strategy, vote for one that will, right? If you have a conservative government that doesn't think about these things, that only cares about the economy, as opposed to like an NDP government that's promising to build some co-op housing, I would go and vote for the, the NDP because you're going to end up paying those costs that the conservatives factor in, in housing and homelessness later anyways. So pay up front to the, the party or vote up front to the party that's going to do something about the issues. And uh, I strongly advocate this in municipal, federal and provincial levels. And I think without that, they can just keep getting away with making false promises and not doing anything about the issues. Thank you. That's really helpful, I'm sure, for a lot of people to hear that. And, and I, I hope we can make this more and more a part of our, our mainstream cultural conversation because um, it will benefit people on all levels. It's not just something that's in operating in a vacuum. We're all interrelated. Yeah. Um, we have time for just one more question uh, uh, from our audience. This is from Peggy. She asked, when we, uh, we read from the ashes in our book club last month, I have a friend who reminded me of you, Jesse, and your story. And in my opinion, he felt that he didn't deserve to be loved. I was interested in the early references to Lucy's kindness. 
the eventual love story and spoiler alert marriage. We've always, we've already spoiled that. Jesse, I'm interested to hear how you came to accept her love and to participate in a loving relationship. I would say, yeah, the story actually is about love. It's about, uh, it's an inverted bell curve, an inverted uh, climax. So I'm, I'm in the love of my community, my mom, my dad, my kokum and mosham. And they're teaching me how to be a Métis Cree. And then all of a sudden that abruptly ends. I go through the system. And then for the rest of the story, all the way up until I meet Lucy, I'm really just trying to figure out love and show show myself that I'm worthy of it. Because I didn't, you're right, I didn't believe that I was worthy of love. Because you learn that from your parents, right? You learn what love and trust is from them. It's one of the first things you do learn. And so it wasn't until years later, I don't know how I was ready or why. Maybe I'd just gone through the ringer so many times and I was just grasping for any sign of life that I could get. But came this wonderful woman when I was in rehab, Lucy, and uh, she offered me love and kindness and she did it unconditionally, you know, and, uh, it made me, she made me believe it. I don't know how she did that. I deserved it. And I, I think her love and kindness is what actually changed me, you know, uh, gave me a second shot at life. Final question really is about coming back to your roots and the work you're doing now. I know you're, you're tracing in uh, Métis, your Métis history and you're doing a lot of great academic work and connecting that with intergenerational trauma. How much did reconnecting with your Métis roots and culture and spirituality um, help you in this journey of healing and um, becoming who you are now? Well, it was everything. Reconnecting with my indigeneity was everything. Because if you look at the story, it's really a story of being identity being stripped away through the process of adoption, right? And then in that empty vessel, that child, indigenous child, was poured all these negative things for that were taught from, you know, public, uh, our public history, our, our uh, you know, media, uh, all those things. And so I came to believe those, right? And it's no wonder I came to live out these stereotypes of indigeneity, drunk, addict, criminal, homeless. These are stereos, stereotypes of what it is to be Indigenous. It wasn't until I went back when I was in my 30s and I started reconnecting with my mom and her people and I learned who my people were that I saw that, hey, we're none of those things. We're none of those things of the stereotypes that I believed. We're actually really cool artists and writers. We're rebels who stood up against the government. We're bison hunters. We're badass people, and that's cool. That's a really awesome identity to have. And so when I found out the truth, it kind of those other things just kind of fell away, and it gave me a clarity as to who I was or I thought I was and who I am now. Uh, and I realized that now I understand what it means to be Indigenous. Indigenous isn't about all those stereotypes. It's actually about seeing yourself as a relative within this web of uh, relations, where you treat everything uh, equally. Uh, it's, it's called wakudu, and that's what we call it in my language. And this bounds you in reciprocal responsibilities with the world around you. So you can't just abuse it. You can't just take the lumber and cut it down and sell it for money because that tree is your relative. You wouldn't treat your uncle that way. So why are you selling your uncle tree up the river, right? And so I learned all this when I went back and I started reconnecting with my indigeneity. And it's a beautiful thing. Because I'm confident in it. I don't have to perform it anymore either. When I was first coming back to my identity, I used to have to wear sashes. And I, I it looked like I was coming straight out of the 17th century fur trade, right? Because <laughs> I was insecure. Because I was trying to convince everybody else, what I, you know. But like as time goes, now I know what it is to be Indigenous. And it's through these responsibilities and, you know, that I know who I am. 
Fantastic. Jesse Thistle, I'm so grateful that you took the time to join us today and may your work continue to thrive and your voice be heard. Uh, anybody who's interested can visit his website, jessethistle.com, J-E-S-S-E-T-H-I-S-T-L-E.com. And of course, is it fantastic book, a number one national bestseller in Canada, From the Ashes, My Story of Being Métis Homeless and Finding My Way, is available through Banyan Books. Support your local independent bookstores, banyan.com. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you.